Hello, you're listening to Series 2 of Brownie Podcast, where we celebrate the cultural confusion of being born in Britain with roots in Asia. Brownie Podcast is co-hosted by me, Shivani Kocha, and the lovely Ashani Bhatt. Due to lockdown restrictions, the format is a little different from usual. We hope you really enjoy the episode. We're here today with a lovely Seema Anand. Dr. Seema Anand is a mythologist, storyteller, and holds a doctorate in narrative practices. She's performed all over the world, mesmerizing audience at institutions such as the VA and the British Museum, bringing ancient Indian knowledge to modern ears. Seema is an acknowledged authority on the Kama Sutra, Eastern erotology, and Hindu texts such as the epic Mahabharat. She frequently travels to India where she works on the revival and reproduction of oral literature. And she's also written a book called The Arts of Seduction, a 21st century guide to the lessons in the Kama Sutra, which we both enjoyed reading. (laughs) Her TEDx talk on seduction has over 9 million views, which is crazy, crazy, crazy. Very, very impressive. (laughs) Thank you so much for agreeing to chat to us today. Well, thank you girls for coming. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks. Um, So I thought we could start with your background in storytelling. Tell us about how you got into storytelling. What what does the art of storytelling involve for you? So, do you know what? It's a question I get asked all the time, and I'm still trying to figure out how exactly I got into storytelling. I've always been into stories, and I believe that the stories are really, really important because the stories that we tell actually define who we are. Mm -hmm. So if you tell stories, for instance, of... A man who comes home from, you know, from being drunk or whatever, comes home and he beats up his wife. But, you know, she's so good. She's so good. She never says anything to him. And she's, she's just wonderful. She's like a goddess. Then that's what you expect a good woman, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you actually want to create change, it is these stories that you need to change. So I I just find that stories are so powerful. They define who you are. They create your identity. They establish your role in society. And if change has to come in any way at all, it's the stories that have to change. You have to start telling different stories. And that's what I worked with for a very long time. In India, unfortunately, um, I, I... At university, I did English, Um, we did English literature. We were never taught any Indian texts. So I grew up on the classics um, and it's pretty much world literature, but never really read any Indian texts. It's only after I came to this country and then started to study again that um, I started to understand about the Indian mythology and the Indian texts. And um, then worked with the lovely Professor Brockington, John and Mary Brockington, who are now at Wolfson at Oxford, on understanding some of these texts. And that's where the journey started. And I realized that as we told stories about Hindu mythology, about women, Mm -hmm. we never ever explored stories of their right to their own body, or we never tell stories of their right to their own sexuality. And so it was literally out of sheer curiosity where I thought, okay, well, let me just see what those stories are that have been silenced. That was about 12 years ago. Um, And I had just planned to do a little tiny paper about, you know, 10,000 words on this. And then I've just sort of, it's been like um, a whole new world. I think I'm still over there and there's still so much more to explore. So that's what brings me 
into the stories of ancient Indian erotica, if we can call it erotica, I guess. Mm -hmm. And something that I found interesting, can you sort of describe, um, just for our listeners, what do you mean by Indian mythology for people who might not really know about it? How do you sort of define it? And also, where does it intersect with religion and and is it part of like the Hindu religion or is it something that's that's separate? So it's interesting again because I think in within the Hindu um, precepts, sexuality and spirituality have always um, been sort of they've always in, intersected. It's it's sort of it's connected. I, I don't even know um, how how to actually explain how deeply spirituality and sexuality are connected so talking about mythology these stories you know a lot of people actually in india get really distressed when we call um some of the stories of our gods and goddesses mythology but as you both know mythology is literally it's not necessarily made up stories it's literally stories that have been absorbed into the um the cultural legacy mm-hmm. of a particular place so they become really important so um our stories are, it's actually quite fascinating because stories were always in ancient times created to teach something. And we, we actually have a story that says that initially there is just philosophy and there is philosophy on every part of your life, anything that the human mind or the human body might ever need at any time of their life. There is a little philosophical text or a large philosophical text for all of it. And Ved Vyas, who is also supposed to have been the um, the author of the Mahabharata, mm. and have written, he's supposed to have written most of the philosophy in ancient times. So there's a story about how he's sitting on top of a mountain at one point, looking very dejected, and the sage Narad, who is um, supposed to be the son of Brahma, the creator, and he's cursed to wander the earth forever. So the sage Narad, on one of his wanderings passes by and he sees Vyas sitting there in this state of dejection and he says to him, he says, why are you so upset? And Vyas says to him, he says, I'm so upset because I've tried to make society better. I've written so much literature. I've written so much philosophy. I've explained how to deal with any situation at any time of your life for everybody. But nobody seems to be reading it and society seems to be falling into worse disrepair and I don't know what to do. And Narit says to him, he says, you've just made it too complicated who's got the time to read all these books that you've written and then figure out what they need to apply at what time. He says, just create stories, put it all into stories instead. It's so much easier to understand. And so from there, we have this entire genre that comes about called the Purans, which is where um, all of the stories, all the gods and goddesses are actually uh, created from these stories mm. because the the many, many millions, the 33 330 million gods and goddesses that we believe that we have are actually manifestations of each little tiny part of your existence. Mm-hmm. So you understand what you're talking about. And so it's an easy, it's like a go-to reference point almost. Yeah. Do you, find, do you find there's a distinction between studying these texts academically and then passing on in kind of the oral tradition in which these texts probably existed or, you know, passing on the, the moralistic story without necessarily studying the intricacies of of what this literature is. Yeah, I actually found that um, studying it in the academic way is, unfortunately, it's the quickest way to kill off a text. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Having both studied English literature, we completely agree. (laughs) 
um, you know, and it also then it becomes the, um, it just becomes the territory of a few, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But if you want to keep it alive, you've got to then tell the stories because stories kind of morph with life, you know, they change, they evolve, and they still stay a little bit the same and a little bit different. And I think it's the only way that keeps it alive. And so a long time ago, I decided that, um, it was going to be through stories that I would do this because it is far more exciting to me to see how it is the story that gets told. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, let's face it, if these stories, if we say, for instance, that a story is 2,000 years old, society has changed so many times in those 2,000 years. The way that story has been told has also changed so many times in that 2,000 years. Sometimes it's been pro something, sometimes it's been against something. Um, one of the best examples I find, um, so we have about a thousand years of Buddhist rule in India. We call it rule, I mean, whatever. Um, so from about the 4th century BC to about the 4th century AD, Mm-hmm. It's the Buddhists that are really in power. The Brahmins have been thrown out. In about the 4th century AD is when the Brahmins start to come back. So you have these wonderful stories from the Mahabharata. There's a particular story of Kants, who is the uncle of Lord Krishna. And he's the evil uncle, the one who imprisons Krishna's mother and the one who kills off all the children uh, that are born and is, is supposed to... Um, well, he tries to kill Krishna, but then Krishna is saved through this miracle and so on. And there's this, there's a story about how evil he is because, you know, there's uh, Krishna's grandfather, who's Kansa's father, is having this great big prayer ceremony. And he's invited a hundred Brahmins to conduct this prayer ceremony. And he's built a prayer, a havankund, you know, a, a prayer fire, which mm-hmm. is about a hundred feet long and a hundred Brahmins sit around it. And there are thousands of kilos of rice and dal and milk and ghee and all sorts of things that are supposed to be put into it and you know and they're going to be praying to every single god in the heavens to bring down the most amount of blessings on the people of the country and in comes Kunz and he knocks us over and he kicks (laughs) over the prayer (laughs) fire and he throws these brahmins out on their bottom and oh he's such a bad guy the buddhists used to tell the story as the, the the brahmins were about to waste thousands and thousands of kilos of food which would have been fed to the poor and if blessings are to be brought down this is the way that mother earth gives her blessings and the gods give their blessings by giving good food to the poor of the country so in his in their eyes he was the good guy so it's the same story that you would tell but it changes just literally with the context of society as we Mm. move along so i think stories really are the most important thing i think it's all about stories and what's very exciting you asked earlier about um, the erotic literature so we have different genres of literature in india and the what we call the classical sanskrit literature is all based on the metaphors of the Kama Sutra. So it's what we call erotic literature. We don't know that it's erotic because it's based on the metaphors. Mm-hmm. So the, the, and we don't have reference to context because in India we, we did not really believe in actually writing things down. So there's no written records of things. Mm-hmm. Everything's really fluid. You really don't. I mean, the most famous of our ancient writers, Kalidas. Scholars are 
undecided about when he was born. But not just undecided, the indecision is sort of between a thousand years. <laughs> I mean, it kind of, they're, they're that undecided. So we have no idea of exactly when something takes place. We, it's, it's very, very fluid. Um, but yeah, so we don't have a reference to context for the metaphors, which is why um, we don't know that a lot of it is erotic, but it's all based on the idea of physical intimacy mm -hmm. and mutual pleasure, mutual being the operative word. Mm -hmm. It was so important that in ancient times, literally, there are texts that tell you that success in any part of your life depends on the 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 um, success in karma. You know, the, how good is the mutual pleasure between a man and a woman? And it is the it is the love shared between them that will keep the balance of society, the balance of the universe. Mm -hmm. And just going back to this sort of fluidity of stories as well, where does that leave you? Because you study the, the text and then you're living in this, in your context, in our context, the 21st century. And is it then your responsibility to interpret it in a way um, which suits the world around you or, or sort of who decides how the, how the story changes? So I think, um, yes, I think that's, um, I think that's a really interesting question because I think I have taken it upon myself to interpret it in a way that would be most beneficial to the world around us. But that's not to say that we don't, you know, there's a lot of scholars working on the same stories at the same time. And I think it's also really important to take the strands from it that must have originally meant to have delivered the lesson mm. sort of so this friend of mine um, who teaches feminism in um, GNU in Delhi she has a really interesting idea she says that um, it's like um, wearing nude makeup you know where you have nude makeup layers and layers and layers of makeup is applied to make sure that everything looks the same nothing has changed and she says that society runs its stories in that way. So whatever somebody is trying to keep the society at, because society changes constantly and our mindsets change. Mm -hmm. So it's this huge machinery that goes into creating sets of stories, changing them ever so slightly with the changes in society to try and keep things the same. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's... And it, to literally to look at this machinery, you have to hit the... Um, what's it called the the view format button you know on the on the laptop you have the 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 what's it called there's a button that actually shows you when you've made changes to a document oh track changes <laughs> so you know it's like when you look at that you realize yeah. so i just think that if we also want to see certain changes in society it's about being disruptive mm -hmm. it's about then trying to bring back the stories as they must originally have been created because not all stories were created bad or to put somebody down or to create a certain i don't know um a certain hierarchy or a certain power system um yeah so i guess there is a little bit of both there's a little bit of looking at um, what originally it must have been like depending on what scholars say about it and what researchers say about it and a little bit about also saying okay well, let's interpret it according to the needs of the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
And so what were the stories that you were brought up with? So I think the stories that we were brought up with, that, that I was brought up with, very few, I might add, because I, I grew up in colonial, post-colonial India. Mm-hmm. And um, so the stories that we're told are very much about still, you know, as, as I said, at university, it was the classics. I mean, you know, it's, it's all about the Greco-Roman heroines. The only Indian stories that I heard growing up were either Sita mm-hmm. from the Ramayana, or Draupadi from the Mahabharata. Mm. And Sita, we always grew up being told, was the perfect woman. She was this wonderful person. And this is the person, this is the woman that every Indian woman should emulate. This is who you should be like. But the story of Sita has been changed dramatically, drastically, to what it must have originally been written as. Because when you read, when you when you hear the story of Sita, she comes across as voiceless. Mm. She's... Ne- she, I mean, she's this perfect wife who never, ever argues with her husband. She never does anything wrong. She does whatever he says. But if you actually read the story properly, you read the epic, you read the, the narrative of the Ramayan, and you see the things that she has to go through, you realize she must have been a very strong woman to have managed to do the things that she did. Mm. And one of the things that we were always taught was how when she's rescued and, you know, from her from captivity when she's kidnapped yeah. and when um, you know then she has to go through this the fire test the fire test in olden times would not have been literally walking through fire it would have been about um, a, a really tough test which is how justice would have been delivered in ancient times across the world um, but then she's taken back to the kingdom and then there is somebody you know the dhobi the the laundry person who comes along and says he makes a nasty crack about her and says well you know there she was living in another man's um house for about a year when she's kidnapped and i am not so forgiving as lord ram i wouldn't have taken her back how do i know that she's still pure and then ram goes through this thing of saying oh well yeah well you know the people of my kingdom are not entirely certain so i'm afraid you have to leave and she said, so the story that I was told when I was growing up was that she says, I am, you know, because she's such a good woman, she's such a good wife. And she says, okay, if that is your will, I will leave. And she goes through the fire test yet again, and then she still leaves, she still has to leave. Well, there is an ancient Ramayana that says that when she, when this thing comes up with this man making this accusation at, about her, there is actually a court case in the kingdom where people come and give their opinions for and against her. And finally, yeah, it's really fascinating to think that this actually happens if somebody says, no, 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 she couldn't have done this. And somebody else says, well, it's possible and so on. And the penultimate argument is that there's a, there's a story that if Ravan, the person who had kidnapped her, if he had actually um, had sex with her without her consent, his head would have exploded so we know that he has not that she's still pure Mm -hmm. and the final argument is that actually the only time that Sita makes a decision for herself is when she's living in the forest and when Ram and Lakshman have to go off to look for that golden deer that she wants so much and Lakshman draws that line around the thing and she and he says do not overstep don't step out of this you will be safe if you stay inside and this man comes along and asks for water and she makes the decision to step out of that line. 
So this is the only time where we're seen, where we're shown her making a decision for herself. And if a woman who can overstep social boundaries when she's told specifically not to, we don't know what else she might do. Right. That's the final mm -hmm. argument. And at this point, Sita says, yes, I accept your decision because I did do that. So, you know, it changes her, her um, persona completely because now suddenly she is this woman who's independent, who says, yes, fine, I did do that. And so I take the um, responsibility, I take the consequences mm -hmm. yeah. for my decision. And suddenly you're looking at this amazingly independent woman who says, yeah, fine, okay, I did that. I, I take responsibility. And off she goes. So these stories were not what we were told when I was growing up. And resultantly, most people, when they grow up in India and they listen to the stories of the Ramayana, Nobody really wants to use her as a role model because mm. nobody wants to be a voiceless, put-upon person. Mm -hmm. Everybody has, um, you know, we all have our own strengths. So yeah, these are also the stories that were silenced when we were growing up. And so yes, we all grew up with uh, Helen of Troy instead of... <laughs> <laughs> instead of Sita. Instead of Sita. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was interesting that you touched upon the interpretation of women across different forms of classical literature. Do you think there's a distinct interpretation of what the Indian classical woman is and how, how is that different from your, your Helen of Troy, for example? So I actually found that, um, you know, as part of this panel, I was just doing some research on the overlaps, mm -hmm. strangely enough, and there comes a point in, oh, around the time that Alexander the Great is supposed to have invaded India. So let's say 2000 years ago, Classical Sanskrit literature is flooded with references of Greek women. And so a lot of our courtesans and a lot of the, um, the traditions and the rituals have actually come down to us from, the, um, from Greek literature, oh, which wow. is interesting. And also Greek drama, Aristotle's principles, and um, the Natyashastra. Uh, which is the um, the book on ancient Sanskrit drama. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of overlaps in the way that they deal with um, with with um, drama, with theatre, mm -hmm. and most of the stories then written subsequent to that are based on. Um, they're basically put put out in the form of um, theatre. Okay. So it's really fun, but I think what I like uh, so the Kama Sutra to me is the very first book that actually gives a platform of equality for women. Mm. It's, um, and it's interesting because, like I said earlier, we've lost a lot of our literature. We didn't have this, this tradition of writing things down or translating it, so a lot of manuscripts are lost, a lot of the ancient literature is lost because living in post-colonial India, we still haven't come to the point of studying ancient Indian literature. Mm -hmm. So there's very little of it available. And in a way, so we, we might have, if we'd had all that literature, we would have had our Helen of Troy's, mm. Helens of Troy, rather. Um, <laughs> but what I find, what we do have instead, which is even better, is that we have the Kama Sutra. And the Kama Sutra refers to the women as the woman, the Naika, the heroine. Okay. So it doesn't give them specific names. So it generalizes it, which is fantastic, because now it's, every woman mm -hmm. who is that heroine 
And I think it's like Deepak Chopra says that the best thing that the Kama Sutra does is that it talks about sensuality and pleasure and this woman who goes out seeking her pleasure and it's very important to satisfy her pleasure. But he doesn't make her into the femme fatale. Okay. So he doesn't make her into a Helen of Troy that is just so amazingly beautiful that everybody would have <laughs> killed to just be with her. He, he actually creates this idea of beauty based on movement and independence. So women at that point, if you were really gorgeous and sexy and you wanted to be very sexy, you would have to do a lot of physical exercise. Mm -hmm. So playing ball, playing ball games mm -hmm. was a really important part of a woman's um, seduction education. Interesting. Yeah. And it was actually part of a dance routine. And it was supposed to be, I mean, our ancient stories are full of passages of women playing with the ball and they describe the movements of the body and how the, the skin changes its color to, you know, from pale to red and then this sheen of perspiration that makes her glow and, the, you know, and, it's, and you have then passages of the effect that it has on men. And I love it that, you know, it wasn't about her just being so beautiful that she would sit there on a throne covered in layers of makeup, <laughs> shackled with all this massive amount of jewelry, but actually a woman who was out there being independent, running around, moving, you yeah. know, it's gorgeous. The next time I leave my spin yeah. class, I'll remake <laughs> myself and look differently. You should. That's why you're sexiest. Yes. <laughs> sweatiest, did you say? Yeah. Sexiest, I said sexiest. But yes, it could be sweatiest. Um, <laughs> um, and just because we really want to get onto all the Kama Sutra stuff, but just but going back to um, that idea of um, you in India, they still don't study um, classical texts. And it must be really complicated because you had to almost come here to take these texts more seriously. And, and sort of how do you grapple with that in terms of why aren't they interested in these things in India? How does it make you feel that... It's because of sort of the post-colonial hangover in India that they don't want to talk about those things. But then in Britain now you are talking about those things. And, and I don't know, it's a weird... So I think, unfortunately, that we don't really understand research in the same way as we understand research in, this, in the West. So most of the research scholars have been based in the West. I mean, that's the sad truth. Mm -hmm. Also, um, I find that when you're translating from let's say Sanskrit to English. Mm -hmm. You have to be extraordinarily good in both languages. A lot of the Sanskrit scholars in India are brilliant at Sanskrit, but not necessarily in English. Mm -hmm. So when they do translate, it's actually, I mean, it reduces me to tears because I can't understand a lot of what has been written. So I think it's going to take a while. There are, there are some amazing scholars and scholarship has started now in India on our ancient texts. Mm -hmm. But if you imagine that it's been missing for so long, it's going to take time to come back to it. And it's not going to be an easy transition. Mm -hmm. And also then it is about understanding how a lot of these books were written and accepting that they were written in a certain way. Which is again something that, you know, in, in Greek mythology, we're happy to accept it. Mm -hmm as whatever it says because it's no longer the religious canonical texts whereas in in india they are still yeah, connected yeah. with religion 
So it's it's a mm. little bit of a balancing act. Mm. Mm. It's, yeah, there'll be the distinction between translation and interpretation yeah, almost. Absolutely. And I don't know, I, th- I think obviously there is such... I think people kind of want Sita to be that lovely Indian woman absolutely. still because yeah. there's security, there's cultural security in that. Um, so I suppose what would your... What, what do you think the resistance will, will kind of be like? Do you think there will be a shift towards appreciating the text in the original form where she was this independent figure? Or do you think that kind of, that sense of her being the traditional, you know, good Indian woman will continue? Oh, I think it's going to continue for a long time. I think the change will come, but it will take time. Mm-hmm. And I think what's also interesting is that um, the way that the Ramayana is written, Sita in in ancient Indian belief you don't distinguish between being strong and being gentle it's not mutually exclusive Mm -hmm. so you could be extraordinarily gentle and loving and caring and giving but also very strong Mm -hmm. and capable and brilliant and so on and I think unfortunately that in ancient times, when when in British times, when the first set of Ramayans were translated, um, I do believe that they were very good at the languages, but not necessarily able to understand the social context mm-hmm. in which the story was written. So again, that, which is why I really, really hope that we do actually come back to reinterpreting and translating the texts in India because we understand our social context yeah. as well as our language. Yeah. So you understand where the woman is coming from when she says, you know, I love my husband and I'm happy to iron his shirts for the rest of my life, but I'm also independent mm-hmm. and I will not be told that I have to go and do the cooking every day. You know, mm-hmm. there is a, do you know what I mean? Like ironing his shirts doesn't necessarily make me subservient and not cooking for him doesn't make me bad yeah if you get what I mean so I think that they were trying to um I think Sita is just the most fabulous character um and I just want her to be brought back (laughs) (laughs) I think Shakuntala is an amazing character again so strong so beautiful so seductive and I think the other thing that we were able to do which we've lost in time across the world is that this idea of stepping out into the man's world when you gain power you you subs, you s- subdue your sexuality mm-hmm. that you you can't touch that part of being a woman that's then just for the the bimbets and i hate that word oh my god i wish it had never been written <laughs> um, but you know what i mean so the idea that you know if you want to be dressed beautifully and you want to display your feminine side and yet you want to be powerful in the corporate world. It's just like, no, I'm sorry. What do you think? You're coming in with like an armful of bangles. Where, where do you think you're going to a party? Yeah, I mean, even the, the, the parallel that you just drew is still so prevalent. So, you know, you are either perceived as, you know, playing up your sexuality almost as well, and, and kind of indulging in it for a power play. Yeah. Or if you want to be successful in the corporate world, you almost have to dull it down. And I think mm-hmm. the fact that even still now that's part of the female condition and it's something that we have to consider in the power plays and kind of gender dynamics I think obviously shows that actually things have not changed (laughs) (laughs) and this is why these stories have to be retold The, the, the stories just have to change I really really believe it's when you start telling a different story it's when 
change starts to happen. It's just, that's what the next, my next book is going to be about. Um, I've been asked to write about stories that were told in ancient India, which actually give agency to women. So, they, and they, it's not necessarily about empowering them or, oh, poor things, you know, the victim and they need to be rescued. It was just about completely, about non-judgmental stories. Mm -hmm. They were just stories yeah. about the fact that women were equal human beings. And those are amazing stories to tell. that's something that you definitely talk a, a lot about in your first book, um, yes. The Arts of Seduction, which is, um, it's about the Kama Sutra and, and how we can apply that in the modern world. And um, just for our listeners, could you just go back to basics and explain what the Kama Sutra is? And, and then we can talk about all the kind of cool feminist readings and things. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So the Kama Sutra is, um, it's probably the most famous book in the world. Um, most people think of the Kama Sutra and they automatically think it's a book about positions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is not a book about positions. And strangely enough, I want to tell you that in the original Kama Sutra, he, the, the author, or who we think is the author, it's a bit of a Homeric kind of identity, so we don't know if the person there's a man called a sage called Vatsyayan who's supposed to have written the Kama Sutra we're not sure whether it was him or not but that's who we believe it is um, the author does not even mention the act of sex in the Kama Sutra mm -hmm. so there's no mention of you know when you when you read the ancient um, Chinese erotica or whatever and this is a treatise of um, on love the Kama Sutra is supposed to be written as a scientific treatise. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's it's um, it talks about all the different things that should be used um, to pleasure somebody for foreplay, etc. And then it stops at that. You know, when you go into the ancient um, Chinese erotica, they talk about thrusts and bodily fluid and so on. And so, the Kama Sutra doesn't even talk about that. Mm -hmm. So it is actually not a book about sex. It is not a book about positions. There is a small chapter on positions, but um, that's it. The book is actually um, divided into seven chapters or sections. Mm -hmm. The first section, it, oh, also I should tell you that the book was written for men because in those days, this is written in about 300 something AD. Um, this is at a time when women were not taught how to read or write. Okay. Men were taught how to read and write. So this book is basically written to teach men how to pleasure a woman. Now, that's pretty cool. Mm, yeah. okay. The Kama Sutra was about creating a very, very highly civilized society and how people, men particularly, in a very civilized society should live. So in the first section, it teaches a man how to build a house, how to choose an area, the perfect area to build his house, how the house should be built, how many rooms it should have, have how it should be decorated, how a man should take a lot of trouble about how he should look and how he should get dressed. Mm -hmm how often he should shave, how often he should wax the hair from his private parts, etc., to be really clean and nice. Um, the second section is about the, um, the arts of love. So the different types of foreplay to try and um, make the experience of loving really fabulous for both people. The third section is about how to look for the perfect wife. The fourth section is about how to marry the perfect wife. 
Um, the fifth section is about how to seduce another man's wife because there are, <laughs> there's lots of different reasons that you might want to, you know, suppose her husband's really powerful and you want favors from the person. So yeah, anyway, so there's a section on that. Mm-hmm. All the things that a, a young man uh, in urban society, an urbane young man would need to understand. The, the sixth section is for the courtesans, so it was added, we believe, later on the request of the courtesans. So how they should um, develop their business, what kind of lovers they should have, what kind they should get rid of, how to get rid of somebody, <laughs> etc. And the seventh section, again, we believe, which was added much later, is about all the magic lotions and potions that you could have to make somebody fall in love with you. <laughs> which is absolutely the most pointless, useless... I mean, it's a little bit of fun, but it's really, it's a daft. (laughs) Completely daft. So that's the Kama Sutra. Now, um, interestingly, before he writes the Kama Sutra, Vatsyayan writes an introduction to it, where he answers a lot of questions which he thinks will be posed to him. So in the Kama Sutra, because like I said, men it was only men who were taught how to read and write. Women were not considered smart enough at this point. But he writes instructions for both men and women. So when he writes about the chapter on kissing, for instance, he says what kind of kisses a man should give a woman and then what kind of kisses a woman should give a man. And is that with the understanding that a man would then tell if the woman can't read the actual text then how do they find out about these things so this is actually Vatsyayan actually brings that up in the and he says a lot of people have said to me how silly why have you written instructions for both sets of you know for both the speech for both men and women um women are so stupid they don't know how to read or write why have you written instructions for them and he says well Women can, a lot of women can read and write if they really want to, but basically women understand these things intuitively and men have to be taught. (laughs) So he says, I write it, addressing it to the men. Okay. Um, And then he says, a lot of people are going to say, but sex is, um, it's an animal instinct, it's a bodily instinct. Everybody can have sex, animals can have sex. Why do we need to be taught how to do this? And he says, but you are not animals. You know, everything is an animal instinct. Eating is an animal instinct, but we all want to eat as fabulously as possible. Mm. And sleeping is an animal instinct, but you want the softest bed with mm. silken bed sheets, etc. Says you are not animals, therefore you cannot have sex like animals. Animals are not monogamous. Um, animals don't have to cover up their genitals when they're walking around in public. Animals don't have to worry about where they mate. We have to think of all these things. So he says we live in society and therefore we must live by the rules of that Mm. society. Mm. And so it is important to understand what to do. Mm -hmm. Which I think is really brilliant. I think it's so intelligent. But what I absolutely love about it is that he bases it all on the pleasure of the woman. So he says a man's pleasure is very, very quick. It's like fire. Mm. It arises at the gentles. It goes up. Mm-hmm. And like fire, it's very quick to, uh, to light and very quick to douse. A woman's pleasure is like water. It starts at the, head, at the top and it goes downwards. And like water, it takes forever to come to the boil and takes forever to cool down. Mm-hmm. And so he says pleasure is so distinctly different between men and women that they have to be taught how to pleasure each other. 
so that they can actually, so that the experience resulting from it will be a fabulous one. Mm-hmm. And so he bases it all, and he says, he says, a man's pleasure is so quick, it doesn't really matter till you can actually learn how to pleasure a woman properly, really satisfy her properly. Mm-hmm. Your sexual experience will never be that amazing mm-hmm. because it's only when she's really, really having a wonderful time that you will too. It's just an automatic it's most people understand that if they have enough brain but a lot of people don't quite get it mm-hmm. so and then he goes i mean and i personally think this is why i always think that the ancient indian erotica was written by a woman because it goes to extraordinary lengths to change this narrative mm-hmm. of the fact that pleasure is more important um it, that it's more wonderful if it is the woman who is satisfied first and so it goes on to say that you know if you can actually figure out how to pleasure a woman completely, your wife, every single thing in your life, you know, you're, you're going to be able to fight battles better when you understand how to make love better. Um, you're going to be able to run your state better, the kingdom better. You're su- you'll be more successful in business. And the woman will run your house. She won't spend too much money. She'll make sure she saves it for you. She'll be so happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I just love the fact that, you know, it's like, okay, this is what they understand. Let's get them there. You know, the, the bits that actually make sense to, yeah. to them. And you touched upon the Kama Sutra being like, you know, this cultural power, everyone, one of the most famous books. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's the subject matter? Do you think it's because it's talking about sex and everyone ultimately is interested in sex? Do you think it's because it's a treatise? Like what, what's built it up into being this, this work that everyone, regardless of where, where they're based, what country seems to know about? So I think what probably, so yeah, it's, um, it's not the first of the uh, treaties on love that mm-hmm. were written. Uh, but it's the first extant one, so it's the first one, the oldest surviving one that we have, or we think we have. Um, because Vatsyan says he doesn't actually write anything new. He actually says in his introduction that he's just taken stuff from a thousand years worth of literature before that, and he's taken the bits that he likes and he's kind of copied and pasted into the Kama Sutra. Now, the Kama Sutra, like most of the other Sanskrit literature, goes underground. Um, for a large section of society. A lot of ancient Indian literature is based on that, but we've also forgotten. I think even the people writing it maybe didn't know that the metaphors came from there. But then in the 1800s, there's a man called Richard Burton. Mm -hmm. Yes, Richard Burton, who um, goes along to India and he finds this text and he thinks, this is great, I'm going to translate it. So he actually translates it and brings it out into the Western world. Okay. And he translated it according to what he understood of it, which was not very much. Um, and I think that when he brings it out, and this is when a lot of this stuff from India is coming out into this part of the world, mm-hmm. into the West. Mm-hmm. And so there's... Um, there's um, studies of tantra i mean there are people going from here which is a very very repressed society at this point the victorians are particularly like oh my god and they're going across to india and they're discovering discovering tantric practices they're discovering kama sutra practices they're discovering this land where 
um, the worship of the body and the worship of sexual energy is considered to be this amazing. And they're bringing it back and they're retelling it in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where it kind of, um, it captures everybody's imagination, of course, but I think it also plummets, I mean, loses its, its identity. Mm. And I suppose it's quite interesting. So um, the, the Karma Sutra almost was found or came into the world through this colonial vision, this this retelling of an old Indian text, but a text that's been cur- curated almost for a Western audience. Mm. And I suppose it's quite interesting then to think about the power dynamics or, you know, whether that's the birth of all of these misconceptions. I think there's this whole overlap between kind of Eastern exoticism. Yeah. And to me, it seems like that colonial imprint of what was originally a, an Indian text might might seem to be kind of the root of, of where that like cultural conception maybe is, is birthed from. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, this whole thing of discovering the Orient, um, you know, for the people in the West and then going off there and looking at um, rituals and traditions and interpreting them according to the way that they thought, or the way they saw it. Mm. Um, but I think it's also, at some stage, I wonder if we are, uh, ourselves are responsible for this or whether we can lay all of the blame on the shoulders of those that came and conquered and changed. Mm-hmm. I really don't know. It's just one of those things because even today, like I said, when I actually started to really study the Kama Sutra, till today, even the academics who translate the Kama Sutra will not translate the metaphors. And that's what really, really frustrates me. So for me, this journey of actually saying, I'm gonna write it down, started with um, the jewelry. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay, now we were talking about positions. The idea, like I said earlier, sexuality and spirituality are very, very deeply connected, they overlap. And the idea is that pleasure, sexual pleasure, but pleasure generally, is something that has to be raised higher and higher. Pleasure is a manifestation of the mind. It basically begins in the mind. So it's about elevating the mind. Mm -hmm. So they believe that if you refined everything, if you made it more elegant, it automatically lifted your mind just that little bit more. So it was about elevating you further and further till you finally achieve God. I guess much like Socrates and um, the story of Socrates and the courtesan who is supposed to have taught him um, about love, where she explains to him the four stages of love that always starts in the physical and then you get on to the next bit where, um, you you know, first it is that you look at this very beautiful woman and you say, oh my God, she's gorgeous, I want her. And then you get to the next point and you think, okay, um, not I think you're gorgeous, but the fact that you are gorgeous. So it's not me like, ooh, I like you, but the fact that you are gorgeous and I would want you. And then you get to the next point where you just start appreciating the beauty for what it is. And then you finally get to the point where you say, I wonder who that was who created such beauty Mm. and how fabulous must that being be. So it's about starting there at at base level and going up. And this was your journey Mm. to God. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, so the the Kama Sutra 
it's trying to create this very civilized society and therefore it has to be one of utter refinement, utter elegance. And it starts with um, the fact that jewelry, uh, sorry, um, uh, being on top was not a regular position for a woman during sex. And you know, in most other cultures, in most ancient cultures, it was you couldn't be on top during sex. I don't know if you've ever come across the story of Lilith. Lilith, mm-hmm. in uh, Christian mythology, she, she's Adam's consort before Eve. And she's um, the only one in ancient mythology, in ancient world mythology, where she's created equal to Adam. They're created from the same mud. Mm-hmm. And she says, I am your equal. I have the right to be on top. And she's thrown out of heaven for saying this. So being on top was not a regular position for a woman. Mm-hmm. The Kama Sutra says the woman could be on top. Okay. But you had to be very good at what you did. <laughs> <laughs> and being very good meant that you had to be able to bring your partner to orgasm by only moving your hips. So when you were on top, the rules of... It's, like I said, the Kama Sutra is a treatise. It's a, it's a scientific treatise on love, on sexuality, on sex. Mm-hmm. So everything has rules. So it says that if you're on top, um, you have to come to orgasm by only moving your hips. You don't move the upper part of your body. And so women, courtesans, really, really um, accomplished courtesans, would wear these jingling girdles across the upper waist and make sure that the bells didn't make a sound. Amazing. (laughs) Absolutely. So now, in ancient literature, you never ever say that she clambered up on top and then she humped away. You don't say that. You just say she put on her jingling girdle. And you know that she's taken her position on top. Okay. Or in, in a lot of the old Jain literature, you would have this uh, thing where it says, and the women came in their jingling girdles. And if you don't know what it means, now you know that, okay, this is a fabulous party. What kind of men are present? What's going to happen at the end of this party? And what kind of women are coming to it? You know, <laughs> suddenly you know what it all means by just understanding what that word jingling girdle means. Yeah. We still don't, act, we don't explain it. We don't talk about it. We were talking earlier about the um, the red paste underneath the woman's feet. Yeah. So um, the most popular position, like I said, was with the woman underneath, with her feet on the man's shoulders. And if uh, when she did that, the the paste would rub off on the man's forehead. Mm-hmm. So if you saw a man with a little bit of red on his head, you knew exactly Where what he had. <laughs> yeah. And so in our ancient literature, again, you would just say and he took her feet to his head or let's see how he takes her feet to his head or let's you know and so you know what they're talking about Mm -hmm. a man would only have a woman's feet to his head if they were lovers Mm -hmm. and uh, you know it's just these are the little metaphors that kind of explain what it's about but also the fact that you compare the erotic literature of india to western erotica you, you know to um Marty de Sade or mm-hmm. D.H. Lawrence, you mm-hmm. know, which is, okay, Marty de Sade, which is just horribly <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> I mean, horrid. Or D.H. Um, Lawrence, where it's also sinful and bad, and it, Tolstoy and Proust, and I mean, all of them, which is like, it's, love is such a miserable, horrible, ghastly experience.
favourite story. I have to tell you this, just just so you get an understanding. Please, please, please. <laughs> um, from our literature is about this courtesan, and this man comes regularly to visit her. And one day when he's with her, she smells the perfume of another woman on him, and she starts to get fascinated by this other woman. Because you see how you applied perfume was a different perfume on every part of your body. Mm. And each one had to be distinctly... Um, it's not audible, it's not visible. What, what do you say? Smellable? Smellable. Yeah. <laughs> each one had to be distinctly smellable. Um, so now when you leave your perfume on your lover's body, it depends on what you've been doing. And for how long? Mm. Yeah? So she, yeah it's, it's a fascinating idea. So she smells the perfume of this other woman and she starts to get fascinated by this other woman. So she begins to leave little messages on the man's body in the way of love bites and love scratches for the other woman. Mm-hmm. Because each bite, each scratch has its own vocabulary. Right. Okay, we're the only culture in the world that romanticizes the love bite where there are different types of love bites. Each one has its own occasion. Each one has its own... Um, it's message so that you could actually send love bites as a gift. You could you place them on the petals of flowers and you sent them to your lover and it became like a love letter because each one had its own message. Mm. I mean, it's just amazing, okay? It's just so gorgeous. <laughs> so anyway, so she starts to leave love bites on the man's body and love scratches as messages for the other woman. Eventually, the other woman picks it up and she starts to respond. Oh, wow. And the other, the, the two of them, they never meet, but they kind of explore each other's bodies through his body. I mean, that's how so, so cool. So cool. <laughs> how gorgeous yeah. is that? And now you compare it. This is what I mean. Our ancient erotica, ancient Indian erotica, is so beautiful. It's so gorgeous. It's so elegant. It's so subtle. Mm. It's so sensuous. It's nothing like the, you know, the, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, what is that? Oh, I always forget. Who is that person who said um, the philosophy of everything should always just be alluded to. It should never actually be said. You'll come to it. Um, it's something for everybody to Google. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is, so this is the sort of stories that we were writing. Mm. This is the society that... We had at some stage, mm. which changes, fair enough, okay, it changes over time and we don't have that. But, you know, we are so happy to go off and read Marquis de Sade. I want people to understand that there is all this erotica which will make them just feel so good. When, I mean, you know, I, come on, this is how erotica should be. Yeah, yeah the, the subtlety, I think, yeah. is really... And the language, yeah. it sounds that you're quite infatuated by the language itself, oh, which absolutely. is so... Yeah. Lovely. I guess it's interesting, we're sat here and the ideas that you've just described to us from however many thousands of years old and they feel radical and they feel, you know, empowering for women Um, and you mentioned briefly before that you have a theory that maybe the Kama Sutra was written by a woman. So can you talk a bit about that? And also, I hate to use, well, I don't know how you're gonna feel about the word feminism and and whether, do you think that it's a feminist text or is it something that you think is reductive to talk about the Kama Sutra? No, actually, you know, I went through a phase in the middle where I was wondering if one should not use the word feminism so often because it's been used so much. But 
I'm back to saying I want to use it okay. a lot. Um, I want to use the word feminism a lot because I think some things need an identity and they just need to be said. So I'm quite happy to say that it's a feminist text. Um, I think that it does a lot for feminism. It's not necessarily, when you read the chapter on um, the role of a wife in society, I don't think that it's um, hugely empowering that bit. Um, so I think that we need to also understand that, okay, let's not look at that bit. That was then, mm. um, and it was how society expected certain things to be. But I think that this book does more for feminism than any book has ever done. I think the Kama Sutra did more for feminism because it also at the same time placed um, a different narrative out there for women to be identified with, mm -hmm. which just hadn't existed before that. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, I mean, going forward, I think this should be the flagship text for all feminists um, because it, it's just, it's about seriously understanding that women are independent human beings and giving them that identity. Mm -hmm. If you look at most of the history of American feminism, most of the early feminists will say that the first thing they did was it was about sexual liberation. Women's liberation was like, okay, um, you know, this is at a time when you're not allowed to use contraceptives. You're not allowed to um, have abortions. That was illegal to go off and have abortions. And they say, okay, fine, we are independent, we're liberated. And they go off and they, they explore this bit and then most of them say how hollow it felt afterwards. It just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And it's because we're still expressing ourselves sexually through the vocabulary laid out by people like Freud mm -hmm. or other male voices. Mm -hmm. And nobody's actually taken the trouble to explore the pleasure of a woman and really understand it and say, well, this is where it becomes important. So I think that, you know, it's, it is, it's really, really important for, um, for us going forward. I believe that our sexuality is the core of our existence. It is what informs so much of our lives and the way that we think and the way that we um, tend to act and behave. It just, it comes as an automatic thing from our, from our beings. Mm -hmm. And to actually have gone through centuries of people saying, well, a woman's pleasure is sinful. A woman's pleasure is unnecessary. A woman's pleasure does not exist. Mm -hmm. You actually take away a woman's right to be a free human being. I think you take away mm -hmm. somebody's voice, don't you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the First Amendment, isn't it, in America, the US um, Constitution, is the right to free speech, the right to say, to speak your story. Mm -hmm. And how do you posit that in the context of... So, I mean, the, the taboo in Indian culture that is sex, we, we don't talk about it. And particularly as, as women, we, we were told, you know, don't speak about it, you can do it, you know, but don't, don't, don't be vocal about it. How do you think that this text can kind of fit into that context of still what is unspoken, still what is hidden, but, you know, and, and is it different also for kind of a British... Indian community or a British Indian f female background like yeah I think that in India it's not sex that is taboo it's talking about pleasure that everybody's quite happy to talk about sex 
in terms of if you're being crude or if you're telling rude jokes or being stupid you know people quite happy to say talk about sex or being abusive they won't talk about it if you talk about it beautifully so if you talk about pleasure or if we talk about what we've just been speaking about that suddenly becomes like <gasps> so um and I think that it isn't really hugely different even over here. So even, or at least certainly amongst the people of my age group, the women of my age group, it's still not um, uh, something that's easily accepted. Mm -hmm. I've had a really interesting journey with this subject. I've had a lot of people sort of embrace me for it and say that it's absolutely fantastic. I've had a lot of people judge me for it and make life really, really difficult. So it's been an interesting kind of journey. Mm. Um, but I think that as as Kama Sutra, I, I find also that there is a general um, pushback. You know, I mean, if I go somewhere and uh, talking about this, a lot of people will either come because they're like, oh, 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 oh this is going to be funny or, um, okay, I have to do you a favor and you know I'll come along because you asked me to after they've heard it they go back thinking very differently and that for me is just the most wonderful moment because mm -hmm. when they sit down and listen suddenly it's like opening up a whole different door in your head mm -hmm. and saying aha that's what we were talking about because I think for a lot of people over over the years the word pleasure has come to be a bad word because it only means the one thing mm. and I think for women particularly it's quite liberating to know that pleasure can mean so many different things it doesn't necessarily have to just be the one yeah mm. and I really understand what you're saying about pleasure being a a difficult word here and in India but I think also in India it is in some ways, um, it's it's so much harder to be a woman in India that there's so much less liberation in terms of even quite tangible things. Do you think that there's potential in India to change and to like look back at, at our more ancient society and think this isn't how we've always been um, and, and there's freedom here? Do you know what? I think there's a huge amount of potential. I think that the this new generation or the last couple of new generation generations of women indian women are absolutely amazing the girls of the new generation are independent they're intelligent they're fabulous they're they're gorgeous they're athletic they are able to do everything and i think that this men are going to have to up their games mm -hmm. indian men are going to have to up their game mm -hmm. if they still want to be part of these women's lives mm -hmm. and I think that it's not going to happen very easily because you can imagine that they've had it pretty easy till now so the pushback is going to be pretty heavy I mean there is going yeah. to be aggression there's going to be violence there's going to be all of this horrible stuff because I mean any kind of change or status quo is not my because suddenly it's like oh my god I have to work at being a better person now mm -hmm. it will happen it's just that um, it's not good it's going to be it's going to be a battle. It's going to be bloody. Having like talked about the theory and the ideal of it so much and in, a, in an academic way, do you see any evidence of these things being put into practice in, in the real world? And, and I know you have your tips at the end of each chapter of your book, so 
So yeah, can you talk about so that? So I find that every time I actually do a talk on this, um, it does motivate people to try one little tiny thing. Okay. Something, even if it's just one little okay. tiny thing. And like I said, the more that we actually talk about it, even in theory, even if it's just in story, eventually it becomes part of our everyday practice. Mm -hmm. So it is literally about changing that story, about telling a different story. Do you have a favorite tip? Do I have a favorite tip? Um, okay, now I have to think about it. <laughs> okay, so the one that I always say to people is um, that the one thing that we always seem to get wrong is how we kiss. The Kama Sutra says that the kiss is the most important thing. It's the most important tool between lovers because it can... A kiss can be exciting, it can be calming, it can be sensuous, it can be tender, it can be so many different things. And yet most people never really learn how to kiss properly. I mean, they go through life kissing badly. <laughs> Dribbling, sloppy tongue. <laughs> Sorry, it's all, it's all reality. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, we, we <laughs> so, um, the Kama Sutra says that the best kind of kisses are the ones that have the least amount of contact, the ones that are most tentative. So you lean in, you might just kiss somebody, no tongue, okay? Um, don't even touch, but you actually lean in and sometimes don't even kiss. You just place your lip, your lower lip, against your partner's lower lip and then just with a feather, with literally like a feather light touch and just rub the lower lip a little bit. And I want everybody to go out there and try it and just see what it does to you. Okay, no hands, <laughs> no touching. If you really need to touch, the Kama Sutra says, if you're the man, um, you can wrap a little strand of the girl's hair around your finger and that's all the touching. If you're the woman, you either hold on to the man's sleeve or the lapel of his jacket. But that's it, okay? Just literally rub the lower lip against your partner's lower lip. Right, you've heard wow. of Brandy yeah. listeners. Homework, <laughs> homework for you all. Get involved. <laughs> we yeah, talk yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah. I could literally listen to you talk all all day. Um, so thank you so much. I've really, really yeah, loved yeah. chatting to it. It's been great. It's been um, a pleasure. I feel like I've got a homework yeah, assignment. Yeah. <laughs> Find me the next eligible young bachelor. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening if you like what you've heard please rate subscribe and spread the word give us a follow on instagram at brownie podcast or email us at browniepodcast at gmail.com you've been listening to brownie podcast with ashani bart shivani kocher produced by george swainston see you next time